page 1784, if you're following along in the pew Bibles in front of you. And then after we read this, let's read together the answers of the Lord's Day, Lord's Day 28. The, just the first two questions and answers, that's on page 36 in the back of the blue. First Corinthians chapter 11, let's begin reading in verse 17, and then I'll read through verse 26. This is God's word. It is inspired and authoritative for us in faith and in life. Let us give it our attention to its reading. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And then the passage for our sermon this evening. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. So question 75 then. Let us uh, read the answer together. I'll read the question. How does the Lord's Supper remind you and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup. With this command, he gave this promise. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me, and the cup given to me. So surely his body was offered and broken for me, and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, So surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and by believing 
to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us. We are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as members of our body are by one soul. For a while now, I have been reading articles and stories from someone who has been traveling through the parts of America that have been forgotten by most people. Mining towns, Rust Belt towns, towns of forgotten industries, whether urban, suburban, or rural, he has gone there just to hang out, just to meet people, to find out what they do, what they like, what they don't like to find out about their feelings, how they feel about how the past 25 years has gone for their town or for their job. His point in doing this is to show that in today's fast-paced world, towns filled with people like these are often forgotten, but to forget them is to shun their humanity. One of the most interesting things that he mentions is that in most towns where he visits, McDonald's is the most important place. It sounds funny, but it's true, and he comes back to it again and again. He says that this is where people go to find real community and have an experience that is good for them, that is cheap, and a blessing to their soul. Most people look down on McDonald's, thinking that it's part of our regrettable past when we didn't know what was healthy and what wasn't. It's shades of a former America. This man says that to take it away or to to think in that way would be a disaster for people and families who count on it to be there for a cheap family outing or for a date night. He says, I've seen too many people whose lives are bettered by this place. And though it's often made fun of, though it's looked down upon, it would be a disaster uh, to take it away. Many times when he has talked about this in his stories, I have thought of the Lord's Supper because it is at the Lord's table where there is no hierarchy. All of the distinctions that exist outside of the church are taken away. We are all poor beggars who need to be fed. Unfortunately, the Corinthians had forgotten this in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Apparently, they had made it something. They had made the Lord's Supper that brought in social rank from the outside. Just before our passage in chapter 11, the part that we read earlier, Paul says that some go hungry while some get drunk. Paul says that this is so awful because at the Lord's table, all believers are welcome and all receive the exact same benefits. We come to the table to partake of Jesus Christ and to partake of that which is from him and a blessing to us. It is the meal of the new humanity 
in Christ. It is the meal of the redeemed. It is a foretaste of eternity, a foretaste in ways that should remind us that when eternal life comes, when the new heavens and the new earth are here, it will not be the distinctions out in the world that determine how we enjoy eternity. Thus, the supper comes for us, becomes for us a nourishment to our souls and a source of great assurance in this world. That's why Paul writes. He, he writes to show us that in Christ all partake of the same body and blood and that the supper is a source of assurance in this world. And it is also a foretaste of eternity. First, then, we look to this passage and we see that the supper is from the Lord Jesus on a very specific night. We at first see in this passage that Paul says that what he knows of the supper is something which he has received. And not only that, but he has received it from Jesus. There are two possibilities here. Either Paul has received it from Jesus through the other apostles... Someone like Peter could have explained it to him. Or he has been taught the supper and the meaning of the supper through direct revelation. Paul alludes to receiving things through a revelation from Christ in various places in the New Testament. And it seems most likely here that this is what he means. What he has received from Jesus about the supper is something he has been taught by direct revelation. For instance, in Galatians chapter 1, he begins by answering the conflict of the, of the gospel in Galatia by saying that the gospel he preaches is not from man, but rather it is something that he received by a revelation of Jesus Christ. He comes to answer this problem in Galatians. And he says, what I have did not come from man. I have not heard it from any mere man. Jesus Christ taught it to me. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that the commandments which he teaches have come from Jesus. And then later in this letter, he will say that the truth of Christ's resurrection is something which he also received. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he received the truth of the resurrection from Jesus himself. Thus, it is painted with authority. There is an authority that Paul uh, brings to the fore when he says that it is something that he has received from Jesus. So what Paul teaches about the supper is something that comes with authority. It's not only that, but the gospel, the commandments which govern the Christian life, the resurrection are all other topics which Paul invokes this similar language. So we see that there is a high level of importance attached to the Lord's Supper. That's the first thing that we learn here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is teaching them about its importance on the basis of his receiving it directly from Jesus. He is an apostle. He has been given many things directly from Jesus and he attaches this authority to the things that he says. In the world of Paul's day, messages were carried from place to place in much different ways than they are today. Most of the time, messages of great importance would have come from kings or people in high places of authority. And there would have been people who were called heralds who would have gone from town to town many times, literally running from place to place to go into the town square and to give the message to the people. There was no CNN, there was no radio, and so the message had to travel somehow. These heralds would run from town to town, go into the town square, and they would speak 
this message from the king or a political leader of some kind. And the message that they would say would be regarded as authoritative. The words that they spoke would be the words of the king. Thus Paul and the other apostles came to be regarded as heralds of the heavenly king, Jesus. And we see that Paul attaches this authority here to the supper. It is authoritative. And is why we still use these exact words in this passage as the words of institution when we take the supper. We use the words of Paul, which are given through him as the words of Jesus Christ. They carry that authority, and he attaches that great importance to the supper. Christians often discuss what Paul might specifically mean by the words, in remembrance of me. But we should at least observe that Jesus says to do this, do this. When we take the supper, we see that we are obeying that very simple and direct command from our Lord. Jesus said, do this, do this. We should also take note that we are told when these words were spoken. When did Jesus speak these words of institution? One of the very important factors is when Jesus said them. It was not in the Sermon on the Mount It was not at the wedding in Cana, though both of these are important times in Jesus' life. They were said on the night he was betrayed, the night he was betrayed. Why are are we given this specific reference to time? When we think about the context in which words are spoken, it often sheds light on their meaning. For instance, when a newly elected president says at his, uh, at his inauguration address all of the things that he is hoping to accomplish... What he says is often evaluated as the ultimate goals of his tenure as president. Whatever he says on that day are the things he will be trying to accomplish, and he will be evaluated based on whether or not he accomplishes all of these things. The words of a coach before a big game. The words of a general before a big battle. These are things that would be evaluated in the same way ways. General uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower gave a broadcast speech that was heard by both American soldiers and citizens and then also citizens and soldiers in Europe on D-Day, June 6, 1944. And he said this, and knowing the context of, uh, of where he spoke these words paints a new meaning. It gives new nuance of meaning to them. He said this, I call upon all who love freedom to stand with us now. Together we shall achieve victory. We read those words in light of the sacrifice that was made by so many soldiers on that day. He was calling upon those who love freedom to make sacrifices for the good and the future of freedom in the world. Perhaps closely related to tonight's passage, what someone says on their deathbed is often understood as being of special significance, isn't it? The last words that someone speaks. The founder of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, J. Gresham Machen, said while he was close to death, he said to his friend, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. Thus, we say that these words were said by Jesus on the night he was betrayed because it colors the entire sacrament of the Lord's Supper with the weight of his death. 
As we partake together, we remind ourselves that the first time this happened, Jesus was on the precipice of his agony, the culmination of his suffering on the cross, and yet he still showed love to his disciples. He still took the time to do this, this institution of the Lord's Supper. In a sense, then, the Lord's Supper brings us back. It brings us back to imagining that night. We remember that he was so dreading this time of suffering that he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and his sweat ran like drops of blood. And yet in the midst of that great pain, in the midst of all of that apprehension of what was to come, Jesus took time to do this and to tell us to do the same. These words come from Jesus. They come from Jesus on the night of his death. And then we look then at the bread and the cup. The bread represents his broken body, his broken body. It was our Savior on this night when he took bread. This must have been a strange moment for the disciples. Jesus says, this bread is my body. They were used to Jesus speaking in parables and in symbols, but this must have sounded a bit odd to them. But in this breaking of the bread and giving it to those who are with him, Jesus is not trying to confuse or to dramatize his death. He is showing how what he is about to do on the cross is something that is done on their behalf and on our behalf. We should learn that the bread and the body body of Christ are broken for two reasons. Sharing and substitution. Sharing and substitution. First, sharing. Just as the bread is broken and passed around the table, so we do that now when we celebrate the supper. The breaking and distributing reminds us that Christ's work is powerful to speak for all of us. It is powerful to be done to be done on behalf of all people, though we know that he lays down his life ultimately for those who will believe. John 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But it is not done just on behalf of a select few, a small group. It is done on behalf of the entire company of God's people. And we all share in the same benefits of the same body. When we eat together, when the bread is distributed, we ought to remind ourselves that this bread has been distributed to millions upon millions of believers who have taken the same bread, who by faith have eaten of the same body of Christ. To eat of a ritual sacrifice is, of course, to be made to share in its benefits. And that is what we are doing in the supper when we eat by faith and we believe that our souls are being nourished with the flesh, the body of Christ. We are sharing in the benefits of Jesus. It also speaks of substitution, not only sharing, but substitution. It is the body which is for you. We are to hear ourselves in the words of Jesus, the body which is broken for you, Christ's work that can be credited to our account by faith. The body is also a testament to the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. When we speak of salvation, we know that it's not just uh, our sins that need to be forgiven, but heaven must be earned. There must be a positive righteousness that is placed there in our behalf, credited to our account, and that is what the body of Christ speaks to. We see this in various places throughout Scripture. In the Garden of Eden, 
God did not demand just the absence of disobedience for Adam, but he required his full obedience. In the kings of Israel, it is not just that they worshipped other gods, but God wanted a king who sought him with his whole heart. God wanted a king who worshipped Yahweh, the God of Israel, and gave his allegiance and his obedience to him. And this is what Christ is for us. This is what Christ does for us. His body, which was broken, is a symbol of his righteous and his obedient life. The blood speaks to the forgiveness of sins, doesn't it? But his body, which is broken, is a symbol of his righteousness, which is given and granted to us in faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says this, Christ Jesus becomes for us wisdom from God and righteousness and holiness and redemption. Christ is all of these things. He is all of these things to all of God's people. He earns eternal life for us. The body that is broken for us represents his life lived. It was a body that sin had not defiled, where the sinful nature had not touched This perfect and righteous man. This is the blessing of sharing in the broken body. Substitution, righteousness, and that it was for us. Next we look at the blood symbolized in the cup. Jesus gives the cup after he gives the bread. Jesus says that the cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Why does Jesus tie uh, the cup to the institution of a new covenant? The book of Hebrews tells us that we are sprinkled with the blood of a better covenant. Different than the blood of bulls and goats. As we saw this morning in the passage in Luke, there is an interesting relationship between the old and the new covenants. The old covenant had a temporal nature built into it. And this was the error of the Pharisees, wasn't it? Jesus said, if, if you're stuck on uh, the old wine, you're going to say, that's good enough and I don't need anything new. But what they were missing was that built into the old covenant was a, a moving forward of redemptive history, a calling out for one who would come just like Jesus. It was not meant to last forever. In the Old Covenant, God's people were sprinkled with the blood of bulls and goats, but it was in the context of the law which was given to them. All of these things we will do, the people of Israel said. This was the covenant which they broke, which they could not keep. It was a covenant in which the blood that was sprinkled on them cried out to them. It, in a sense, convicted them. It spoke to the power of sin. It was a covenant that became burdensome, a constant reminder of broken promises, a constant reminder of their failure to obey. Many of the leaders in Israel set up a system of self-righteousness in which uh, their conscience became, in in many senses, anesthetized to the truth of sin. They believed that they really were better than all the other people on the earth. And they trusted in their own obedience. They were blind to the realities of the new covenant in Christ, which of course are much better 
the book of Hebrews says that it is founded and established on better promises. What are these better promises of the new covenant? Well, in the old covenant, God promised that if Israel would obey him, he would bless them in the land. He would bless them and watch over them. This was a real promise. But it was not like the promise of Christ, which was better. The old covenant held something out for God's people. Do this and live. But the promise of Christ says this. I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. See, that is a sure and a certain promise. It deals with the forgiveness of sins. Before we move on, just important to remind ourselves that the book of Hebrews is talking about these better promises and the old and the new covenant and the old covenant as being made obsolete by Christ. And it's speaking about the contrast of the Mosaic covenant and the new And so it does not mean that before Christ came, no one experienced the blessings of salvation. That's not what Hebrews is saying. And of course, the covenant of grace began in the Garden of Eden. And the Old Testament people of God experienced the blessings of salvation and the forgiveness of sins as they trusted in the gospel promises that had been given to them, especially the promises that were given to Abraham and to David. They trusted in these promises and Christ's work reach backwards into history to forgive them of their sins. And so when Hebrews uses the term Old Covenant, it's not speaking of everything that came before Christ. It's more contrasting the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. The covenant with Moses spoke to the power of sin, but the New Covenant in Christ contains the power of forgiveness. Those are the better promises that it is founded upon. His blood washes away every stain and every imperfection. God's promises to forgive our sins in the new covenant is founded on Jesus' blood. And the point is that Jesus' blood merits this full and complete and sure forgiveness. Why? Because he is truly righteous. Christ is without sin. He is not only human, but he is divine as well. The Catechism points us to these truths. He is the exact mediator that we needed. The body broken for us, righteousness, sharing, substitution, the blood that was spilled for us, forgiveness, better promises. We reflect on all of these things and we find just a couple of points in closing. We see that the supper is given to us for our nourishment, for our nourishment, We are given bread, and we are given a cup. We see that the metaphor is being drawn right before our very eyes. God is saying to us that Jesus is the food and the nourishment for our souls. Our souls do not become nourished. Our souls are not fed outside of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in me. This does not mean that the only way to receive the benefits of Christ is to participate in the Lord's Supper. For this is what we are always doing by faith when the gospel is placed before us. When the promises of the gospel are declared to God's people. Trust in Christ and you will be forgiven. Trust in Christ and you will be given eternal life. When we believe in that, when we trust in those promises by faith, our souls feed 
on the body and blood of Christ. And so that's not what Jesus means in the Gospel of John. Whether we hear the promises of God or we see the promises of God, when we respond in faith, our souls feast on his body and blood. But it also does not mean that the Lord's Supper has nothing to do with our eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. They are sure signs and a sure pledge that God's gospel is true. We are nourished and it is a way to uphold our weak minds and our doubting hearts. That's why he gives us the Lord's Supper. To uphold our weak minds and our doubting hearts. God has provided this meal for us so that he can connect that which we see and taste and smell to the life of our souls. In the Lord's Supper we find approved pictures of Jesus' broken body. Pictures that we can behold with our eyes and feel materially and taste. It is a memory, but it is more than a memory. We read in the Catechism, As surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. It is a way that our souls are nourished. We see that we also have the blessings of the normal and the blessings of abundance. We have bread and we have wine. Bread is that which nourishes and feeds people day by day. It's normal. It's normal to eat bread, something that people throughout the world have had on the table each and every day for almost all of human history. Bread is for every day, but wine is for special occasions. And thus God shows us that his blessings of grace will get us through the mundane, but it also will point us forward to a time of abundance. God gives us grace for each and every day. But he is also the reason, for, the reason why we celebrate his abundance and his grace. He gives us bread, sign of the normalcy of life. He gives us wine, the sign of great rejoicing and celebration. We see that the supper is also attached to the past and the present and the future. The end of our passage tonight, the Apostle Paul says that when we take the supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. In this way, the supper commingles past and present and future all together. For in the present, we are looking back to something which has already happened. And yet it brings us forward to that which lies in the future. It points us forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said that he would not drink this again until he drank it new in the kingdom of God. And thus the supper is given for that reason, to point us forward to point us forward to the eternal life that we enjoy in and through him, in and by his body and his blood. It commingles past, present, and future. And it does all of these things in the context of a corporate body, right? All of God's people share in the benefits of Christ. All of God's people share in the benefits of Christ in the same way. Thus, as we feast on and partake of the benefits of the body of Christ, the body of Christ, which is in heaven, 
we remind ourselves that God uses the metaphor of the body of Christ to paint the picture of the church. We are the body of Christ, and so it binds us together as we partake together. It binds us together with all of the, all of the believers throughout the ages of the church who did the very same thing and who believed the gospel and who trusted in Christ and who looked to him in faith. Their souls were nourished by these sure signs and pledges from God. Their souls were nourished. Their grace was given to them. God's grace was given to them for the normal and to celebrate and rejoice in abundance. They too proclaimed that which happened in the past looked forward to the future. These things, all of these things are given to us for our nourishment They are given to us so that God might sustain us in this world. We are are thankful for these sure signs and pledges, which he gives to us in the supper. We come, we eat in faith. We do it out of obedience to our Lord and our Savior. It teaches us the truth of the gospel, and it assures our hearts. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this week as we set out. Keep us faithful to you. Help us to cling to you and to your gospel. Help us to cling to Christ always in faith. Through him, may we receive a blessing of sanctifying grace tonight. May we, as the promise of the gospel is held out to us, may we by faith feast on his body, 